Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. Abortion has been and remains a hot-button issue in our culture at large and even within some corners of Christianity. In this episode, Jerry Weirwell will explain the issues with the only biblical text that directly addresses this subject. That's from Exodus chapter 22. In addition to exegeting this confusing passage, Weirwell will also draw on evidence from Psalm 51 before discussing some of the big-picture ethical issues related to modern abortion. Here now is episode 299, Does the Bible Support Abortion? Today I have in the studio Jerry Weirwell, and we are going to be discussing the very important subject of abortion. At the time of this recording, it's 2019, and we've just seen so much political turmoil in the United States on this issue from different states such as Missouri passing a bill banning abortions after eight weeks. Uh, We've seen Nevada loosening restrictions on abortions. New York and Virginia have passed abortion uh, laws. Indiana upheld an abortion law in court. I mean, there's just so many of these different states. Louisiana passed a heartbeat bill recently. And in social media, I'm seeing so many people posting about abortion. I mean, it just really hasn't been a topic of such central focus that I can remember, at least not in recent in, in recent years, where there is all this interest. And I, as I understand it, a lot of this is driven by the fact that the balance of conservative to liberal on the Supreme Court has shifted. Now there's a, a new concern that Roe versus Wade could be overturned, and if that were to happen and states were given the opportunity to make their own decisions, many of the states want to already have a law on the books ready to go so that their state already has an official position on this. So, I mean, it is, this is really an intriguing time, What whichever side of this issue you happen to be on. And uh, I've got... I've got people on both sides of this issue that I see on social media that I, I that, that are making strong cases for this. And I, I realize that on Rest Studio, we have discussed the issue of abortion before, in particular with Kirk Walden. Interview number 38, he talks about advocating for the un, unborn and his work with Heartbeat International. But uh, I thought this is the sort of subject that would be worthwhile to spend some time thinking about and considering from a Christian perspective. What is the Christian position on this? Is there a Christian position? Is it, is it the case that all Christians just believe abortion is a sin? What is the, the case to be made here if you're a Christian? Now, I don't think we're going to get into so much, Jerry, the, uh, the whole subject of you know voting and politics and all that so much as what is the Christian position on it, which really reduces to what is the, the biblical worldview on this subject. Exactly. And, and that's, that's in tune with sort of like the ethos here at Restitutio. We're not, we're not really focused on or concerned to tell you how to vote or get political, although we do want to engage with important issues, social issues and cultural issues that are very much in conversation today. So... Where, where would you like to get started on this whole subject here today, Jerry? Well, thanks for having me here, Sean. And um, I'm glad to be able to talk about this important issue with the audience uh, of Restitudio. And I think the, the first thing that has to be clarified when engaging in this subject matter and beginning to discuss the biblical worldview about abortion is just to clear out the elephant in the room in the fact that the scriptures actually do not directly address this issue. Uh, This is an issue that we do not have a specific commandment or directive from any of the biblical writers. And so uh, that has caused a lot of controversy because there is no specific statement of you shall not do this or you are permitted to do that. So therefore, when developing a biblical worldview, there are other ways to be able to establish what we would call the 
a God perspective or a way that God has communicated uh, his will to his people through the scriptures. And uh, we're going to be able to do that through looking at uh, the way that uh, the scriptures talk about the value of life and the way that the scriptures talk about uh, unborn children and, and things like that. But I think the first thing is we'll go to the the very common text that is highly debated, which is in Exodus chapter 21. And uh, look a little bit at that because this has been sort of the passage that has uh, been used on both sides of the argument. One, people advocating for uh, the option for abortion to be permissible on, on Christian, in, in a Christian perspective, uh, versus also the Christian perspective that abortion is not permissible uh, by God. In Exodus chapter 21, there's a, a lot of uh, kind of what we call maybe case law here of different uh, circumstances and the type of consequences that uh, follow. And uh, we can pick up the passage of interest here, uh, beginning in verse 22. Reading from the English Standard Version here, it says, When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. So what this is talking about is if there are two men who are involved in a skirmish or in a, a fight, and uh, there is a, a bystander female who is pregnant and she ends up getting struck during the brawl. There's a section that says, so that her children come out. But there is no harm, referring that there's no harm to the woman. The one who hit her shall be surely fined and the husband shall impose the fine on him and he, the, the offender, shall pay as the judges determine. However, if the woman who is struck, if she is harmed during this whole ordeal, uh, then it says that the, uh, the lex talionis, the life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, basically that whatever harm is done to the woman, that that should then be retributively done to the offender or the one who ends up uh, inadvertently striking the woman. This is really such an, a, such an important text to wrestle with here. And what I find so disconcerting about it, Jerry, is that translations differ so wildly. Uh, the ESV that you were reading from, I take it as a very literal translation. In this case, the men strive together, hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out. Okay, The uh, New American Standard Bible, however, says that she gives birth prematurely, whereas the New Revised Standard Version says so that there is a miscarriage. And so, it, it, okay, in one case, the, the child comes out, and we don't know if the child's alive or dead. In the other case, the child comes out, and the child's fine. It's just a premature birth. And in the uh, third case, the child dies in a miscarriage. So... Whatever this is saying depends on which translation you're reading. So if you're an NRSV person, you're going to read this passage. You're going to say, wow, the child's life doesn't seem to be all that important to God. If you're reading the NASB, you're going to say, oh, my goodness, God puts the same value on this baby as on a full adult human being. So help us figure this out, Jerry. What What's going on here? Yeah, there's actually a um, the word, Hebrew word, uh, form of yasa here, uh, which is translated as come out in the ESV, but then is um, nuanced to be either premature birth or miscarriage in translations like the NASB or the NIV. So the, the word here for that, that's translated come out from the ESV, as I said, Hebrew form of the uh, verb yasa, meaning just to kind of depart, means to go out. And it's actually a normal term that is used to describe human birth. Uh, and there are several occurrences of this in the book of Genesis and Job and Jeremiah, where this verb is used in that context. The verb doesn't occur uh, for miscarriage 
really in the Hebrew Scriptures, except possibly one reference in uh, Deuteronomy 28. So the main use of this word is about uh, giving birth. The normal word that's used for miscarriage is, ask, is actually a different word. And it refers to when people are under God's punishment, as people are forced to be taken away, to have their children taken away by violent means or wild animals. And so what we see here is either the two questions are, is this referring to if a woman has received a trauma and that the children come out and either are able to live post-birth or uh, um, stillborn and, and it's a miscarriage. And the uh, context really seems to be that it's really dealing with a premature birth here in the sense that the word for miscarriage uh, explicitly that could have been used to denote that is not used and the normal word for giving birth is used instead. And that leads to uh, thinking that the woman being hit um, when she gives birth to her children prematurely that there is a fine imposed upon her for that. Uh, but it doesn't really specify the harm that is done to the baby, if there is any, in the birthing process. The harm uh, refers to whether or not the woman is actually physically harmed in the process. So you're saying that the, the baby is not really the focus of the law here? Yeah, the, the idea here is that if the woman's not harmed, and just the birth happens prematurely that there's a fine. But if the woman is harmed, then the uh, law of lex talionis is going to be enforced upon the perpetrator. So, yeah, the focus here is about the pregnant woman and what happens to her. The reason why this passage is so controversial is because the party that is in favor of permitting abortions uh, from a biblical worldview... Uh, wants to see this as a miscarriage happening so that only a fine is levied in the case of a miscarriage, uh, where verse 23 here in Exodus 21 um, refers to a mortal injury inflicted on the mother rather than the child. The clue to that is the fact that it mentions these specific injury types, like tooth for tooth, like an infant doesn't have a tooth, hand, foot, uh, burn an infant, a f you know, fetus, an unborn child is not going to have a burn, you know, but like the woman could be burned. Well, actually, Sean, I think maybe the Hebrew text is kind of ambiguous about that fact. Uh, the harm it, it may be just generalized here, and I think uh, it would be uh, would be saying too much to try to exclusivize it to the the mother alone. Here, here's another translation, Jerry. I just pulled this out of the Word Biblical commentary mm -hmm. on Exodus, and the way they translate it says, when men are scuffling with each other and they hit a pregnant woman, resulting in the premature birth of her children, but without harm, the man who struck the blow is certainly to pay damages in the amount fixed against him by the husband of the woman. Uh, he is to give in accord with an objective evaluation. If, however, there is harm, he is to give life in place of life, eye in place of eye. So I, I guess that's really my question, Jerry, is like when it says is if there is harm, it seems like in verse 22, the harm is in reference to the child. But then in verse 24, it seems like the harm is in reference to the woman. And I realize that verse 24 is, is laying out a general principle, the principle of lex talionis, you know, uh, the law of retribution. So maybe we can't be too limiting to this specific case here uh, as far as what this has in mind because it's a general, it's a general statement. But uh, it, it did, that's, that is kind of the nub of the confusion on my part. Yeah, that's what everybody's debating about is whether or not the harm is just the accidental cause of a miscarriage here or whether or not it's referring to the harm of the mother and the child collectively. And those who advocate for a premature birth perspective on this passage see the harm being that if the woman is struck and she's able to deliver a premature baby that is unharmed, 
then that is where the one who hit her shall be fined, and the uh, courts will determine the, the fine that he's to pay. However, if there is harm to the woman or the baby that is prematurely delivered, then the uh, law of lex talionis will be enforced. That makes sense to me. So the harm is more general. It's not, I shouldn't be trying to like force it on just one or the other. You know, it says if there's no harm. Well, that's harm to the mother or to the child. So, you know, I, I shouldn't be trying to say, oh, it's just specifically this one or specifically that one. Uh, there are two parties involved here, and either one can be the the victim of harm. Uh, maybe that helps a little bit to explain that. And the people who are advocating that abortion is permissible um, in a biblical worldview want to see the harm only being directed at the mother because what that means is that the cause of the miscarriage is penalized only by a fine. Therefore, that the what happens to the child is insignificant here that the only the woman is in view and the judgment rendered upon the assailant or the perpetrator is based upon whether or not the woman gets actually injured in the process doesn't have anything to do with the fetus yeah or the unborn child yeah once again the word biblical commentary in the uh, the co- their comment on this verse says that if by the trauma of the blow the premature birth of her children if there is no harm, presumably either to the mother or the newborn child or children, the man who actually inflicted the blow is to pay compensation, fixed by the woman's husband, and so on. If there is a permanent injury, either to the woman or presumably to the child or the children she was carrying, equal injury is to be inflicted upon the one who caused it. So that, that's a very broad perspective that uh, this commentary is taking on it, saying that it's, it goes to either one. The group that would like to advocate for abortion from a biblical worldview uh, wants to see this as an accidental miscarriage uh, because what that would mean is that the death, the, the accidental miscarriage of the unborn child is not met with the same consequence that uh, harm is to the mother. And what they try to argue then is that the punishment for causing a the accidental miscarriage or the death of the unborn child is then actually not punishable according to the same standard that a human life would be, which uh, would be according to Lex Talionis, uh, the law of retribution, as you mentioned. Uh, So they try to argue that the mother is exclusively in view here because what that does, it devalues the unborn child and the consequences of what happens if the woman is hit during this struggle between these two men. However, I think that that's really not a sound argument to make here as uh, the Hebrew uh, really points to the idea that if when the children come out, if there's no harm, uh, it's a very ambiguous description. And the other thing to be uh, aware of is that if we say for the sake of argument that this would refer to an accidental miscarriage and the idea that the fine that is... Uh, put against the perpetrator is similar to the fine of property. If you look back at uh, verse 20, it says, when a man strikes his slave, a male or female, with a rod and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. Meaning that uh, there's actually a lex talionis going to be involved if you kill your slave. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. In this passage here, the slave is equated to actually being a piece of property and actually is equated to being part of the owner's money, his his actual assets. Uh, So if you want to devalue the unborn human life in the pregnant woman, uh, the section already you'd have to conclude devalues human life in general and specifically to slaves and so i I think you're at you're at a very i think you're at a stalemate if you follow that logic right so you're saying that if somebody said this exodus text is making the case that a child's life an unborn child is equivalent to property that person is also supporting an Old Testament view of slavery that slaves are also property. Yes, that is correct. 
Okay. And therefore, uh, human life in general is not valued on the same scale. It depends upon your status. Basically, the conclusion that I would like the audience to come to is that we actually can't come down and land on a hard uh, conclusion based on this passage alone. Uh, and this passage is thrown back and forth from either side of the debate. Um, and, and because of its ambiguity, I don't think it's good for us to try to um, find solid ground here for making a claim one way or the other of, with 100% confidence. Yes, I would like to mention, though, that as far as comparing translations is concerned, it seems to me that the RSV and the NRSV, those two versions, are outliers among English Bibles. Uh, because what I see is the, the Holman Christian Standard Bible says it's premature birth. Uh, ESV says her children come out, but there's no harm. Even the Septuagint talk about it as the child is born but imperfectly formed. Uh, so really, it's only the, the NRSV, the RSV, and then the NAB, the uh, New American Bible, uh, that prefer this reading of miscarriage. Now, having said that, obviously, the truth is not a matter of popularity, and it's not like we just line up all our English translations on one side and vote, uh, because sometimes a minority can be right. But it is certainly worth noticing that this is a trend among various English translations to go with the premature interpretation over the miscarriage interpretation. But, uh, Jerry, even if the, it, it tended to be the other way, either side could then very easily come forth and say, okay, but that's the law, that's Old Testament, that's the sort of principles that God had for Israel at that time, that's not necessarily binding for all Christians today. Yeah, that's an argument that, that some people could make, uh, but I would come against that sort of an argument in the sense that, uh, well, then the logic that you could extrapolate from that, or you could say the implicit logic, is that God changes his mind on what he values between the time of the law and the time of Jesus Christ and after. In which case, I don't know many Christians who'd be willing to stomach that sort of a conclusion. Mm -hmm. So basically what I hear you saying is that you're going to argue for skepticism on Exodus 21-22 and say that this text should be ruled out of court for either side because it's just not, there's no way to be absolutely certain which which way to read this is, is correct. Yeah, I tend to favor the stronger evidence leaning in the side of premature birth. But you are correct that there, we cannot have a definitive conclusion based on this text alone. Right. And therefore, we need to look elsewhere for in Scripture for inferences and information that helps us to establish what a biblical worldview looks like for human life, particularly the unborn child. And I think the next place that I'd like to take us is to Psalm 51. In an article that was written by Bruce Waltke, a famous Old Testament scholar, in 1975 called Reflections from the Old Testament on Abortion, he uses Psalm 51 as a text to substantiate that God actually cares about the unborn child, that the unborn child actually has the features of humanness, the image of God, and actually has some sort of connection to sin already before birth. This is all based on Psalm 51? Yes. All right, so let's hear your case from Psalm 51. That Those are some pretty big statements that Walkie's making there. Yeah, in Psalm 51, in verse 5, it says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. What Waltke's trying to advocate for in Psalm 51 here is the notion that at the time of conception, a person is already in a state of sin and that the person's spiritual and moral faculty is already present in the fetus. And he does this through a process of exegesis of the passage 
where he demonstrates that the idea of being brought, brought forth in iniquity and being conceived in sin refers to the way that the embryo or the fetus is not conceived in an act of sin, but that in conception, at conception, that growing human life inside the womb is already in a state of sin. It's being born into the sin that has been handed down, as Paul says in Romans chapter 5, since Adam. Oh, I think this Psalm, Psalm 51 seems a little weak. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And his point there is that the child is in sin, not that his parents were. Yeah, being brought forth in iniquity doesn't mean that David's parents were sinful in the way that he was conceived. It refers to the idea that he's brought forth already in a state of sin, like every other person, every other human being that's ever been born has been born into sin, which is Paul's conclusion that I was saying in Romans 5, that uh, every person from Adam onward um, is in sin. And explain how that helps the case against abortion here. The idea that the unborn child in the mother's womb uh, has uh, no connection to being an actual human life or being, how that you can't have a glob of cells be in a state of sin, that there actually has to be a life there that is being constituted that then is attributed to being part of a propagation of the human race in order for it to be considered to be in a state of sin. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, but I, it's not clear to me how that is really making the case one way or the other on if it's proper to terminate that life. I, I don't think any, anyone's disputing that it's a life. I think what's being disputed is that it is valued at the same level as a, a born baby. Uh, so... If anything, you might you might be able to justify abortion on the fact that this unborn fetus bears sin in some sense. You're eradicating well, what it, sin. What it's saying <laughs> is that the post-birth child and the pre-birth child are both still viewed as a human life. And therefore, terminating a life before birth or terminating a life after birth, uh, you can't separate those two. That, that's the argument that's, that Waltke's making in Psalm 51 here. Okay, what else do you have? I think that this then segues into the issue that kind of surrounds most of this debate, which is whether or not life begins at conception or human life actually can, uh, starts later on, for example, like sometime mid-gestation or post-birth. Because uh, I think that what happens is people talk about uh, is the fetus, the unborn child, is that actually a human person or is it only a person once it reaches a certain maturity level, maturation, or once it's actually born? And so I think that uh, that's kind of what's been going around uh, is whether or not uh, you can consider uh, actually aborting an unborn child as considered uh, killing an innocent life or not. And this kind of stems from a very famous article from 1975 by Jane English on what is the concept of a person in regard to abortion. And her argument is basically that uh, personhood is a conglomeration of a bunch of different features of which is highly arbitrary based upon the definition of one gives to what it means to be a person. And so uh, the conclusion of her article, while she argues a bunch, basically is that you actually can't rest the case on whether or not a unborn child is a person based upon the idea of personhood theory because everybody differs on what they would characterize as a human person. Mm -hmm. I think that also lends itself to confusion because it misses the point. It's trying to now define whether or not it's legitimate to terminate an unborn child uh, based upon the way that we define the classification of its current life state. If it's currently living as a 
uh, actual human or it's a developing human or it's a potential human. Right. And is it self-aware? I think that's really for per, for personhood theorists, which sadly it seems like the whole society is now, <laughs> whether they know that terminology or not. Uh, consciousness and quality of life, these two factors have become really important for the subject both at the beginning of life and at the end of life, whether abortion or euthanasia. Uh, you say, well, hey, is this baby aware in the womb? Is this fetus aware that it's alive? Or is it unconscious? Or is it just sort of semi-conscious so that it is experiencing life, okay, but it's not self-aware? This comes in as a major problem from a Christian worldview because from a Christian worldview, there is no distinction based on personhood in the Bible. For the, for the sake of the Bible, the question is all about life itself, not consciousness. And the real founding scripture that gives a, a biblical worldview definition on the subject is the image of God that we find in Genesis, right, Jerry? Yeah, that's definitely uh, a major part of it. So if, if from a biblical worldview, we ground our sense of value, human value, in being made in the image of God, that that making, so to speak, is is baked into the DNA, if we could locate it somewhere. Even like, in a, say, a, an adult in a coma who's not conscious, they're unconscious, they're still in the image of God. Uh, someone who is severely mentally disabled is still in the image of God. Somebody that's not yet born is still in the image of God. Somebody who's under anesthesia for surgery, they're still in the image of God from the, uh, the biblical point of view. So it just won't do to say, oh, well, uh, the fetus is not self-aware, so we can kill the fetus and the fetus will be fine with it. You know what I mean? Yeah, this is why uh, the question of personhood actually really is not the fundamental question. And I think as you're referring to Genesis 1.26, then on, on the heels of that is Genesis 2.7, uh, where God created the first human being. It says, uh, then Yahweh God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Uh, life consists of having a body and this breath inside which we uh, use the word uh, soul to describe the animation of the human body, the way that the human body or any creature, any actual body of a creature is actually living. And I think that's where we are talking about the ideas uh, that once a child is conceived, uh, once the uh, egg becomes fertilized as a zygote and then implants into the salt, into the wall of the uterine and becomes an embryo, that there is actually creature life that is propagating there. It's self-propagating. It doesn't require to be, it just requires the nutrients to be given from the mother's uh, uterine wall and then ultimately when it develops uh, the umbilical cord. Uh, but it's, it's its own life and it's growing on its own. Uh, whether or not it can survive outside of the womb or not, I think, is a red herring. It gets away from the actual issue of what is going on inside the womb. Yeah. One other point I'd like to bring up on this subject is the point made by Alberto Jubilini and Francesca Minerva, who are bioethicists that argued for what they're calling afterbirth abortion. And the idea there is that since a newborn is still not not technically a person because a newborn is still not self-aware and is not uh, capable of attributing to his or her own existence some basic value such that being deprived of this existence represents a loss. That's their technical definition for personhood. As a result of that, Jubilini and Minerva will argue that from an ethical standpoint, if you're going to be consistent with personhood theory, you should be able to to kill a born baby, even days, uh, maybe even months after birth, and it should be completely the same as an abortion or killing that fetus when it is very, very young, like a zygote stage, because it's still not self-aware to a degree that it can attribute any kind of meaning to his existence or experience any kind of loss 
for going out of existence. And once we get to this point, we're talking about infanticide. And it's, it's so amazing because in early Christianity, these were really two of the main issues that they fought against so much, which was abortion and exposure of infants. And, uh, you know, so I, don't, I, I sure hope that the world is not going in this direction with everything, but it is logically consistent, and therefore I think it begs the question, well, if it's logically consistent with my beliefs to kill born infants, then there's something wrong with my beliefs. <laughs> what, what is it? Yeah, I think this. we should now get to the, the main issue that I think is, is the question at hand is this argument over uh, the rights who has the right? Because I think that's that's where uh, so much of the debate surrounds. Is it the woman's right to her body? Is it the fetus's right to life? I mean, but uh, Stanley Hauerwas, the famous ethicist from Duke University, in in his uh, writings on abortion, uh, he basically says the the main question for the Christian response. Uh, to the issue of abortion is is not about uh, rights. It's about responsibility. And what he says is that Christians in the church, they have a responsibility. The responsibility is one given to them by God, starting from the mandate back in the garden that the whole point of being human beings, of being God's creatures, is to populate the earth. And the idea that Christians are to uh, desire to have children and to raise them up in the Lord and to have their children respect, honor, and worship the Lord is, is the idea of why you bear children. Uh, children are, are not supposed to be for merely the pleasure and enjoyment of the parents, yet that is a component of having children. Uh, children are to propagate the human race and to be able to bear for the Lord our God a family who love him and honor and obey him and live according to his will. And this is why I believe from a Christian perspective that the whole idea of who has the right to uh, what to do with their body or who has the right to protect something in their body, it misses the point entirely, really, because what it's about is what ha God has charged the human race to be responsible for. And that is to be able to be loving creatures of his, created by him. And therefore, we don't have uh, the jurisdiction to be able to determine when, for example, an unborn life is or is not something that we can do away with at our convenience, which is what the group who wants to advocate for abortion is trying to argue for, is that until the unborn child reaches a certain state of maturity or reaches an ability to actually provide for its own or be a contributing member of society, it's really not valued. According to God, all life is valued. And according to God, God desires to have creatures, his creation, to be living on his earth that he created and for those who are older to raise up the younger, including the ones that are unborn yet, to be part of his family to surrender and honor and worship him. In addition, one more point I have to make is that I believe that Christians in the church have a responsibility to assist in helping pregnant women, specifically pregnant women who uh, may be uh, tempted to try to uh, justify an abortion due to either financial constraints or due to fear of the unknown and uncertainty of whether or not they could provide for the child or based upon pressure from a spouse or significant other who uh, is trying to coerce them into a course of action that they don't want to take. And so I think as Christian believers, we are to be supportive of those who are in such positions and to help them understand that there is hope, there is help, and that through the help of the church, the brothers and sisters that they have in the Lord, that they will be able to bring a wonderful life into the world and raise them up to be a person who loves and honors and worships the Lord our God. Very good. I just want to push back a little bit here and offer some critiques that uh, typically we hear on the other side of this issue, just so that uh, we're not just preaching to the choir here. Uh, back when Obama was running for president, Rick Warren interviewed him, 
and he asked him the question, uh, I know this is a very complex issue, 40 million abortions. At what point does a baby get human rights in your view? And Obama famously replied, well, you know, I think that whether you're looking at it from a theological perspective or a scientific perspective, answering that question with specificity, you know, is above my pay grade. And uh, I think a lot of people were somewhat appalled by that response where he basically punted and said, hey, I, I, I have no idea. But then Obama actually came back and gave more information. And he said he said that he is pro-choice, that he believes in Roe versus Wade. And he came to that conclusion, quote, not because I'm pro-abortion, but because ultimately I don't think women make these decisions casually. I think they wrestle with these things in profound ways in consultation with their pastors or their spouses or their doctors or their family members. And as for me, the goal right now should be, and this is where I think we can find common ground, and by the way, I've now inserted this into the Democratic Party platform, is how do we reduce the number of abortions? The fact is that although we have had a president who was opposed to abortion over the last eight years, abortions have not gone down, and that is something we have to address. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm less interested in the politics here as I am in the warrants for President Obama's statement that he is pro-choice. And he, he says he's pro-choice because he doesn't think women make these decisions casually. And I, I think that's just a really, really weak argument. You know, if somebody labors and thinks deeply about killing a whole bunch of people that they don't like, that doesn't make it any better than if they just did it in the, the heat of the moment, right? So ca being casual or deliberative doesn't doesn't change the the ethical effects. If anything, it makes it worse. Um, but uh, really, the point that I see brought up over and over again, I'd like to hear what you have to say on it, Jerry, is that if abortions became become scarce and difficult to access for women, then inevitably women will turn to back alley abortion doctors in unsafe conditions and women will die. And th there are specific examples often pointed to of women who, who did tragically die seeking these uh, very uh, risky and dangerous operations in the past. For example, on uh, lifeandlibertyforwomen.org, they have a very startling picture of uh, Jerry Twerty Santoro, who at 28 years old died, and a picture was taken of her by the coroner, and that was then published in 1973 in a, ma in, uh, in a magazine. So, I mean, you've, you've got these grisly actual pictures of these poor women who are dying. I think we, we, would, we would agree that if someone's desperate enough to get an abortion, that they, they will take risky measures into their hands, even at the, the potential cost of their own lives. So how do you respond to that? And also, why do you hate women? <laughs> yeah, I understand, you know, the argument that people are trying to make on that if they don't make it safe for women to have abortions, they will have them anyway, and they'll figure out how to do it in uh, lesser than proper means. But I, I think that's the case with everything. I mean, are you going to legalize narcotics so that you don't have people, you don't have druggies getting laced uh, cocaine or heroin uh, because it's not being uh there's no quality control by the government. You know, I, I mean, it's, I think that if people want to uh, have something, they'll find a way to have it. And I, I don't think it's the responsibility of uh, the government. And I definitely think it's a Christian responsibility either to try to ensure the uh, safety and well-being of those who want to participate in destructive behaviors like that, whether destructive to themselves or others. Yeah, I mean, it, it is certainly uh, a real issue. And my heart goes out to ladies that find themselves so pressured to not have children that they're willing to, to kill their own children at the risk of their own lives. I mean, what a horrible place to be in. I think we as Christians, we, we can be uh, part of the solution, whether or not abortion gets 
uh, repealed in this land, uh, what I see is a whole lot of Christian clinics spread all across this country where they are saying to women over and over and over again, hey, whatever your family's saying, whatever your boyfriend's saying, whatever your husband's saying, whatever your parents are saying, we are here for you. We will help you with this child. We will stand in line with you at the welfare line. We will, uh, I mean, there's a whole band of Christians in the adoption who are adoption activists in this country. And, uh, you know, I've, I've uh, been very impressed with them. And, and they, they will basically say, look, I don't care if, if the baby is born addicted to drugs, if the baby has Down syndrome, if the baby is not likely to survive long. We will take that baby. We will love that baby. We will raise that baby. Uh, so I, I think Christians are already really at the forefront, although it's not reported in the news, obviously, a lot of times uh, for whatever reason, that these clinics are really trying to walk alongside women who are in desperate uh, conditions and in desperate need of support. And uh, so I, I want to say that on the one hand. But on the other hand, Jerry, it's like... Um, is you know if 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 a baby is a human life, if an if a fetus let me let me back up if a fetus is a human life, and killing a human life is murder, then it's the same thing whether you're an adult, you're a teenager, you're a child, you're a baby, or you're still in the womb, and who would ever use that argument against outlawing murder, right? I mean, we don't say, oh, well, if we outlaw a murder, then they're just going to have to murder people in sneaky ways that might might risk their own lives. <laughs> Nobody would ever make that argument, right? So I think there's a real logical inconsistency here with it. And I, I realize there's a lot of compassion, right, rightly so, uh, on the exigent circumstances of this particular situation. But at the same time, ethically... You know, we, we, we should be consistent whatever position we take on this issue. For me, the my theological stake is in the ground with the, the great commandment of Jesus, you know, love God, first of all, but then secondly, love your neighbor as yourself. And it's not it's not loving to, to kill the baby. It's just it's just not. Uh, the loving thing to do is to to care for, to take uh, neonatal supplements and vitamins and to treat yourself well and avoid smoking and drinking and risky behavior that could hurt the baby, you know, that's, that's the loving thing to do. And so that's, as far as I understand it, the Christian position on this very difficult subject. You meant prenatal vitamins, right? Prenatal vitamins. <laughs> neonatal. neonatal vitamins. That's all right. Yeah, I think the last caveat I want to say on this, because we, we could go on for a long time, because the, the sides of this debate and, and the issues involved are so complex, and it, it would it could just uh, extend into tomorrow. But there is a small uh, caveat to be mentioned that um, in a very rare case, uh, extremely rare actually, uh, that the fertilized egg does not actually travel down the fallopian tube tube and embed in the uterine wall, but actually uh, is stuck in the fallopian tube. It's called an ectopic pregnancy, and it actually is fatal to the mother. And in those cases, uh, you know, that's a different matter altogether, I think, because uh, what we're talking about is voluntary termination of a viable pregnancy. That's when we're talking about abortion, we're talking about the women who want to just discard a healthy growing child in their womb. Uh, for various reasons, uh, none of which are in the best interest of the baby. Um, so the, the type of medical emergency that is brought on by an ectopic pregnancy uh, is, is a different case uh, of which we're not categorizing as voluntary abortion. Yeah, yeah. In, in, in that kind of situation, nothing can be done, you know. Uh, so at least not where our technology is yet. Hopefully we, we could advance to a point where, you know, even a very, very young baby would be able to grow outside the womb or be transplanted to the womb or, you know, somehow we would even save that child. Uh, but, you know, you, we can only do what we can do medically at this point. And uh, I think it's good, good you bring up that exceptional scenario as well. All right. Well, that's it for today. Real cheery so subject <laughs> for discussion. Thanks for uh, joining me, Jerry. 
You're welcome, Sean. Thanks a lot. Well, that's it for this interview. If you would like to check out related podcasts, I encourage you to listen to Interview 38, Advocating for the Unborn with Kirk Walden. Also, Offscript 34, Killing the Unborn, as well as Offscript 46, Should Christians Outlaw Abortion? These are all in the podcast feed if you just scroll down, or you can come on to restitutio.org, and you'll be able to find these episodes there in the show notes for this episode. In addition, I have a full theological paper that builds a biblical theology of the body that I think, if you're interested in this subject, might be helpful to you to develop more of a comprehensive framework for thinking about human bodies and uh, the whole idea of personhood theory drawing on the work of Nancy Piercy, and that's called Biblical Somatology. I presented that at Restoration Fellowship's 27th Theological Conference, and you can get that at restitutio.org under papers. Again, it's called Biblical Somatology. Somatology just means doctrine of the body. Uh, I do lay out a case for a biblical position on the sanctity of life in that in that paper. Also, we got a new review. This came in from J and E seven seven seven. The title is Intelligent, Respectful, Biblical Exegesis. And this person writes, Most professed Christians have not thought about the Trinity, or Jesus, as, quote, a man attested by God, end quote. This show is theology from people trying to put biblical ethics into practice. Well done. Thanks so much for writing that review, and I encourage you that if you've been listening to this show for a while, if it's helped you, that you would also write a review for Restitutio. You can do it on Apple Podcasts. You can do it on Stitcher. Uh, you can do it on a number of different websites and apps. Whatever it is you use, I encourage you to please write a review. It does help our show move up in the rankings, and, and then more people can find it. Uh, and I so appreciate the many people who have written reviews for Restudio up to this point. Lastly, if you'd like to get in touch with Jerry Weirwell, you can find out more about him at jerryweirwell.com. That's J-E-R-R-Y. Weirwell, W-I-E-R-W-I-L-L-E.com, and he's got a number of articles and some other research on that site, as well as a contact form for you to email him if you want to get in touch. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week, and remember, the truth has nothing to fear.